This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash freebooks to download this book as a PDF. Through New Eyes Developing a Biblical View of the World James B. Jordan Copyright 1988 Published by Wolgamuth and Hyatt Brentwood, Tennessee Though nature's strength decay and earth and hell withstand to Canaan's bound I urge my way at his command. The watery deep I pass with Jesus in my view, and through the howling wilderness my way pursue. The goodly land I see, with peace and plenty blessed, a land of sacred liberty and endless rest. There milk and honey flow, and oil and wine abound, and trees of life forever grow with mercy crowned. Thomas Oliver's The God of Abram Praise, stanzas 5 and 6. 15. The World of the Tabernacle Psalm 102 tells us that the heavens and the earth eventually wear out, and have to be changed. Of old thou didst found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They themselves will perish, but thou dost endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing thou wilt change them and they will be changed. Psalm 102, verse 25 through 26. Whether the psalmist has in mind the physical heavens and earth, or the social polity of the world, is not immediately clear. Perhaps his language is designed to encompass both. The principle he articulates, however, clearly applies to both, and it applies to the Abrahamic heavens and earth. They wax old as the people grew into a nation. Eventually, there were too many people to be ruled by simple clan structures. The people began to break out of the seams of the old heaven and earth garment. God acted to change the garment. For one thing, once the people were reduced to slavery, the distinction between the bloodline of Jacob and the multitudes of servants in the nation broke down. All were servants now. When Israel came out of Egypt, we do not find an aristocracy of true-blooded Israelites dominating a plebeian class made up of the descendants of servants, as probably would have been the case had God not put the nation through the crucible of enslavement. The result of this change was the government by patriarchs shifted into government by elders, Exodus 3, verse 16, 4, verse 29. Men of discernment rather than men of blood came to hold power in Israel. Just as the social polity was forced to change, so was the symbolic polity. Living in cities during the period of slavery, Exodus 1 verse 11, the Hebrews were not able to establish worship oases. As a result, they began to worship at special tents set aside for the purpose. There is a clear reference to a special tent for God, a tent of meeting in Exodus 33 verse 7 through 11. This passage cannot be referring to the tabernacle because it had not yet been built. These two changes in social and symbolic polity anticipated the new covenant that was to come, though in only a very rough way. As the Hebrews dreamed of freedom, they doubtless envisioned a return to the garden oasis of their fathers. God had something else in mind, something far more glorious, something they could not have envisioned. God would organize them as a nation around elders and judges, who at last would be able to serve as true magistrates. God would set up a symbolic polity in the form of glorious tent of gold and precious tapestries. Thus God laid hold on the Hebrews and broke them down in the fires of his refinement.
Exodus 3, verse 2, 7. He then restructured them into a nation, giving them a new name, Israel instead of Hebrew, and revealing a new name for himself, the Lord, the one who keeps the promises made to the Father. Exodus 6, verse 3 through 8. The Mosaic Law. The Mosaic establishment, since it entailed a change in priesthood, also entailed a change in law. Hebrews 7, verse 12. The sacramental law of the patriarchal establishment was circumcision. The center of the Mosaic sacramental law was Passover, though circumcision continued. Stemming from the Passover were all kinds of other sacramental laws. The center of the Mosaic social law was the Ten Commandments. Stemming from the Ten Commandments were all kinds of other social laws. One major change in social law instituted with Moses was an expansion of the laws of incest. Formerly, only cross-generational incest had been forbidden. Genesis 2, verse 24, 19, verse 30 through 38. Abraham had married his sister, just as Cain and Seth obviously had married theirs. Genesis 20, verse 12. Jacob had married two sisters, Genesis 29, verse 18 through 30. Now both brother-sister marriages and marrying two sisters were forbidden, Leviticus 18, verse 6 through 18. In making his people a nation, God gave them social laws as part of the Mosaic Law. There is a good deal of misunderstanding about the Mosaic Law in Christendom today. The three most common errors about the law are that it was harsh, was impossible to obey, and is irrelevant to us today. Against the first misconception that the law was harsh, we have to say that our God is a God of love. God never gave any mean, harsh, unreasonable, or cruel laws. God's laws, even those thundered from Sinai, were loving, joyous, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faith-filled, gentle, long-suffering, temperate, and spiritual. If they seem harsh to us, it is either because we have misinterpreted them or because we are still looking at them from a secular humanistic perspective. We dare not, however, judge the Bible by our own modern standards. Against the second misconception that the laws were so tough, so demanding, and so stringent that nobody could ever keep them, we must say that this is not so. The Bible tells us that Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Luke 1, verse 6. Clearly, the law could be kept, and was kept by many godly people. True, they were not perfect, but they kept the law by bringing sacrifices to cover their sins. Galatians 4, verse 1 says that the people in the Old Covenant were like children. And Galatians 3, verse 24 says that the law was like a tutor for children. The law, then, was a simplified accommodation for children. We expect more from adults than from children. Adults have greater responsibilities and are more accountable than children. Thus, the New Covenant law is actually much tougher to obey because it makes so many demands on our inward attitudes. Why do people think the Mosaic law was hard to keep? In general, it's because they do not know what the law really commanded, and because they have the Mosaic law confused with the rabbinical traditions of Judaism. The rabbinical traditions were a heavy yoke. Matthew 15, verse 1 through 20, Mark 7, verse 1 through 23, Acts 15, verse 10, and Matthew 23, verse 4. Jesus called the people back to the Mosaic law, making it his own, and in doing so, said that he was offering an easy yoke. Matthew 5, verse 20 through 48, 11, verse 29 through 30. We should then briefly look at the Mosaic law. What about all those sacrifices, you may ask? They were the burnt meal, 
peace, thank, votive, sin, reparation, heave, and wave offerings for starters. Some used salt, and some did not. Some used oil, and some did not. Some required a lamb, others oxen, others birds. Leavened bread was used with some, unleavened with others. Some parts of the animal were burned up, others given to the priests, and others were eaten by laymen. These things differed for each sacrifice. It was an awful lot of detail to master. The Israelite citizen, however, never offered any sacrifices himself. Only the priests were allowed to do the sacrifices, and they did them every day. They soon became familiar with all these details. Compare the details of the complicated sacrificial system with the details of auto repair, and it suddenly becomes clear just how simple the priest's job was. How many different kinds of cards are there? Add on the fact that they change from year to year? Now consider all the different parts and aspects that can go wrong. Next time you take your car in, look at all the volumes of Chilton, auto repair manuals that your mechanic keeps on hand, and compare the size and detail with the book of Leviticus. If your mechanic can learn to fix cars and enjoy it, obviously the priests of Israel had no trouble managing the sacrificial system. What about the Sabbath? Wasn't that a burden? No, it was a time of rest. But weren't they forbidden to cook on the Sabbath? No, they kept the Sabbath as a feast. But weren't they forbidden recreation on the Sabbath? No, the Bible nowhere says this. Well then, what did they do? They went to church to worship God at the synagogue, Leviticus 23, verse 3, and relaxed the rest of the day. The Sabbath was not an impossible burden. What about all those cleansing rules in Leviticus 11 through 15? Well, in the first place, becoming unclean only meant one thing. You were not permitted to go into the forecourt of the tabernacle and bring a sacrifice. Since most forms of uncleanness only lasted a day or a week, it was no real burden to be unclean. Second, if you were seriously unclean, you can make other people unclean for a few hours until sundown, if you touch them. But again, that was only a matter of concern if the other person were on his way to offer a sacrifice. At the most, being unclean was an inconvenience. Of course, if you were unclean for months on end and could not attend festivals, it became a more serious matter. The laws of uncleanness were not hard to keep. You were to wash out a pot if a lizard fell into it and died. We would do the same today. You were not supposed to marry your sister, aunt, or child. Few of us would be tempted to. You were not supposed to eat dog burgers or salted roast roaches. Most of us wouldn't either. That is because these are our customs, and we don't find them burdensome. If we were used to eating dog meat, as some cultures do, then the restrictions would be temporarily burdensome, until we got used to it. The Jews were not to eat pork either, but that was not hard for them. They were no more tempted to eat pork than they were to eat roaches. So the Mosaic Law was not horribly complicated or impossible to keep. Of course, in the New Covenant, we are not under the Mosaic Law. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ replaces all the sacrifices of Moses. Christ has cleansed the world once and for all in his resurrection, and so the laws of uncleanness no longer apply to us. That is, they no longer apply as laws. In terms of their symbolism, they still provide wisdom. That does not mean that the law is irrelevant, however, which is the third common misconception. The Mosaic Law has been ignored by the Church for a couple of centuries. In reaction against this, some have taken up the Mosaic social laws as a virtual blueprint for modern society. The proper middle ground is to understand the typological nature of the Mosaic economy. 
the Old Covenant as a type of the New, and the Mosaic Establishment, like the other establishments we are looking at, is a type of the Kingdom of Christ. As a type, it is filled with wisdom for us. A proper approach to the Mosaic Law asks four questions. First, it asks what this law meant in the Old Covenant. Second, it asks how this law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Third, it asks how this law is to be fulfilled in the Church, which is in union with Christ. And fourth, it asks what relevance this law may have in shaping wider society outside the Church. If we keep such a procedure in mind, the Mosaic Laws can be of great value to us, and we can avoid the dangers of legalism on the one side and antinomianism on the other. Remember that a type is something that makes an imprint. If we allow the Mosaic Law to imprint itself on our hearts, meditating on its Old and New Covenant significance, we will acquire inner wisdom, and this inner wisdom will enable us to apply God's fundamental principles creatively to modern problems, many of which are not explicitly dealt with in the Law. For instance, Pornography The Mosaic Polity We turn now to the social heavens and earth of Israel under the Mosaic Establishment. There was a clear separation of church and state in the Mosaic Covenant. Only the family of Aaron could serve as priests in the tabernacle, and only the tribe of Levi could assist them. This meant that no officer of the state could be an officer of the church, and separated the two institutions definitively. Second Chronicles 26, verse 16-19 The law distinguished between civil punishments on the one hand, and ecclesiastical ones such as cutting off from the people, or excommunication, on the other. The civil polity of Israel had been anticipated during the Egyptian sojourn, and consisted of elders who served as judges. When Israel came out of Egypt, she had never before been a nation in the sense of having a civil order. Her elders had simply been leading men. Now, however, a system of courts was needed. God brought Jethro to help them set it up, Exodus 18. Jethro was an Noahic priest-king, Exodus 2, verse 16, 18, verse 12 head of the Kenite branch of the Midianite nation, Genesis 25, verse 2, Exodus 2, verse 16, Judges 1, verse 16, contrast Numbers 22, verse 4, Numbers 25, and 31. Jethro was Moses' father-in-law, and for 40 years Moses had observed Jethro managing the nation, Acts 7, verse 30. Thus, Moses had been trained in civil government. Under Jethro's God-inspired advice, Moses set up a series of judges and appeals courts in Israel. Elders over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands with himself as supreme judge. Moses' successor was Joshua, and after him came other judges, some who oversaw the entire nation and others who judged in more localized areas. None of these judges was a king, and those who aspired to be were thwarted. None had a standing army, or Praetorian Guard. Rather, in time of military distress, they had to depend exclusively on the Israelite voluntary militia. The last of these judges was Samuel, who presided over the dissolution of the Mosaic establishment, and who laid the foundation for the new Davidic establishment that replaced it. In the patriarchal establishment, as we have seen, there were many garden oasis sanctuaries set up by men. These were places of routine worship and sacrifice. In the Mosaic establishment, the Patriarchal Oasis Church was divided into two institutions, tabernacle and synagogue. The synagogue continued the patriarchal tradition of being set up in many places at the determination and design of men. The tabernacle continued the patriarchal sanctuary 
in that in the tabernacle architecture, the altars, trees, and wells of the patriarchs were woven into an organized structure. The tabernacle, however, was expressly designed by God and was located at his command, the new location being indicated by the movement of the glory cloud. The sacrificial worship focused at the three annual festivals was centralized at the tabernacle. Only the priests might approach the altar and the tent to offer sacrifice to maintain the tent. The Levites were set apart as guards and helpers of the tabernacle area. By way of contrast, the worship of preaching and prayers was decentralized into local synagogues, pastored by Levites who live in the towns. Deuteronomy 14, verse 27, 29, and Judges 17, verse 7, 19, verse 1. For the most part, scholars use the term synagogue to refer to the highly structured institution that had developed by the time of our Lord, and that continues in Judaism today. According to Jewish tradition, this synagogue structure was established by Ezra, but it is more likely that it developed later than Ezra's time. Unfortunately, focusing on the New Testament synagogue has often blinded Bible students to the clear statements of the Old Testament to the effect that there were centers of worship not a sacrifice, throughout Israel. Such houses of prayer were places of holy convocation, which was required every Sabbath, Leviticus 23, verse 3. Worship services were also held on the new moons, 2 Kings 4, verse 23. During the Mosaic period, the Levites were the pastors of these local churches. I don't know what we should call them unless we call them synagogues, and so that is what I shall call them in this book. The synagogue was a place of Sabbath-day worship, and came into existence with the Mosaic Exodus. It is unclear whether or how the Hebrews kept the Sabbath day before Sinai. God rested on the seventh day after completing the world. There is a sense in which the new world began at the flood, was not completed until Moses, since there was no new garden sanctuary until that time. Perhaps God did not reinstitute the Sabbath in its fullness until then. Given the hebdomadal seven-day patterns in Genesis, it is reasonable to infer that the patriarchs worshipped on the Sabbath, ergo Genesis 7, verse 10 and 12. There is little evidence to suggest that the Sabbath, at least in its mosaic form, was binding on the Noahic nations. It is surely doubtful, however, that the Hebrews were able to observe the Sabbath during the Egyptian bondage. Thus, the Sabbath as a day of rest, festivity, and worship became a distinct and wonderful blessing of the Mosaic Exodus. The book of Exodus is organized in terms of a passage from slavery to Sabbath. The book of the covenant, Exodus 21-23, through 23, starts and ends with Sabbath laws. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15 says that the reason for keeping the Sabbath was to memorialize not only the creation, but also the Exodus. Thus, the creation of the synagogue parallels the establishment of the weekly Sabbath. The Symbolic Polity in the wilderness, God had his holy army, the militia, camp around him in a special symbolic array. It is important for us to consider this because it correlates to certain features of the design of the tabernacle, the symbol of the body politic. The book of Numbers shows Israel as God's host, his army, Numbers 1, verse 2-3. When Israel encamped, the Aaronic priests were positioned on the east side of the tabernacle as guardians of the door, which was on the east. Around the tabernacle, on the other three sides, were the three groups of Levites. As an outer ring of warrior guards were the twelve tribes, carefully positioned on the four sides. In this way, the army clearly formed a human tabernacle for God's dwelling. Exodus 23, verse 17, 34, verse 23, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. 
Meredith G. Klein has written that God's house building, as depicted in Exodus, is of two kinds. There is first the structuring of the people themselves into a formally organized house of Israel. This took place in Exodus 18-24, through 24, with Jethro's reorganization of the nation, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and the giving of the social laws of the Book of the Covenant. Then, having narrated the building of this living house of God's habitation, the book of Exodus continues with an account of the building of the other, more literal house of Yahweh, the tabernacle. Though a more literal house than the living house of Israel, the tabernacle house was designed to function as symbolical of the other. The kingdom people house was the true residence of God, a concept more fully explored and spiritualized in the New Testament. The book of Exodus closes by bringing together these two covenant-built houses in a summary statement concerning Yahweh's abiding and the glory cloud in his tabernacle house in the sight of all the house of Israel. 40, verse 34-38 This brings us to a consideration of the tabernacle as a symbol of the Mosaic establishment. There are five aspects of the tabernacle which we wish to consider. First, the tabernacle was a house for God. Second, since the universe of heaven and earth is God's house, the tabernacle symbolized the heavens and the earth. Third, the tabernacle was a holy mountain, specifically reproducing the configuration of Mount Sinai. Fourth, since God's house is his people, the tabernacle symbolized the body politic of Israel at this stage of history. And fifth, since the people house started out in Adam and eventually came to be in Christ, and since Christ is the true Israel, the tabernacle also symbolized the righteous individual person, and as such was the type of Christ. The Tabernacle as God's House First of all, the tabernacle was a place for God to dwell. The innermost chamber, the most holy, was his throne room. God sat enthroned upon the wings of the cherubim, with his feet resting on the mercy seat. Into this room only one man, the high priest, could go, and only once a year, to clean the footstool. Leviticus 16, verse 14 through 15. This was biblically to prevent God from becoming displeased, lest he remove his feet from the footstool and depart from Israel, thus withdrawing his protection. The outer room, the holy place, was the living area of the tent. In it were three pieces of furniture. There was a lamp to give light, there was a dinner table with bread on it, and there was an incense platform. We today use potpourri and scent sprays to make our homes smell nice. In the ancient world, before flush toilets were developed and when animals lived very close at hand, the noisome smells were stronger and people burned incense regularly to make their homes smell nice. Outside the tent was a kitchen area. Before the day of gas and electric ovens, people who could afford it put their kitchens and rooms off to the side, or even in a separate building, just so the kitchen was outside the tabernacle. Here the animals were slaughtered, gutted, and skinned. They were washed in the sink, the laver, and cooked on the altar. Such was God's tent, his house. God did not want his house to become dirty, of course. It had to be kept clean, because if the people let it get too run down and filthy, God would leave. Now, while doubtless physical dirt was wiped off the tabernacle furniture, it was mainly moral filth and ceremonial uncleanness that defiled his house. After all, the soil under the tabernacle was holy ground, and thus was cleansed from the curse of Genesis 3. The purpose of the purification offerings of Leviticus 4 and 5 was to cleanse the house of these defilements. Blood was put on those parts of the house that had become unclean, blood being the sacrificial detergent. 
The tabernacle curtains, for instance, if defiled with ceremonial dirt, had to be washed, sprinkled with blood. The Tabernacle as Cosmic House The Bible tells us that the tabernacle and its courtyard symbolize the heavens and the earth, God's dwelling places. Heaven was God's throne, and the earth his footstool. Isaiah 66, verse 1, Matthew 5, verse 35, Acts 7, verse 49. This was set out in two ways in the tabernacle. In the most holy place, the heavenly throne was pictured by the winged cherubim. God sat enthroned on the outspread wings of the cherubim, with his feet on the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. Thus, the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat lid had to do with the earth and humanity as God's footstool. Second, the whole tabernacle proper was a model of heaven, Hebrews 8 verse 5, 9 verse 23 through 25. The most holy place itself was a model of the highest heavens, with the firmament or earthly heavens pictured in the holy place, and the earth pictured in the courtyard. The courtyard altar was the holy mountain that reached toward the sky, pictured in the holy place behind the first veil, a veil of sky blue. Associated with the holy mountain was the labor of cleansing, which means that the labor is to be connected with the waters of Eden. Genesis 2, verse 10-14 As we pass through the firmament heavens of the holy place, we come to a second altar, which is, as it were, a second heaven. Beyond the cherubic second veil, behind this golden altar, was the most holy place, the highest heavens. The courtyard thus represented the earthly garden sanctuary. Adam had been cast from this sanctuary, and it was only under very tight restrictions, codified in the laws of cleanliness, that anyone might be admitted to it in the Mosaic system. Even so, the layman might only come in to the forecourt. He was forbidden on pain of death to approach the holy mountain of the altar. The area outside the courtyard was the camp of Israel, and later, the Holy Land. This corresponds to the land of Eden, the homeland of the priests. Canaan also had very careful set boundaries, and these boundaries were also guarded. Joshua 13-21 In this case, the guards were the Israelites themselves, a nation of priests. The land of Israel could never be owned permanently by anyone except Israelites, for it reverted to its Israelite owners every fifty years. Leviticus 25 Thus, except for the cities, no one but an Israelite was allowed to dwell in the land. Finally, outside the land was the world, the world of the Gentiles converted and unconverted. The converted Gentile did not need to be circumcised and become an Israelite, but could remain a Noahic believer. Such Gentiles were welcome at the Feast of Tabernacles, but they could not live in the Holy Land. Thus, we have five environments, highest heavens, firmament heavens, garden sanctuary, holy land, and world. A full study of this would reveal the following degrees of holiness. Highest heaven, the most holy place, is God, cherubim, and angels. Firmament heavens, the holy place, is high priests and priests. Garden of Eden, sanctuary courtyard, is tabernacle courtyard, war camp, Nazarites, Levitical cities, wilderness war camp. Eden, homeland, is Cities, wilderness camp, the land of Israel. World is converted nations, apostate nations. The holy place, or firmament heavens, is of particular interest. The seven lamps of the lampstand can readily be associated with stars, as Revelation 1 verse 20 makes explicit. It can be suggested, though not proved, that the seven stars are to be associated with the seven planets of the ancient world. 
planets were the stars that moved, and the tabernacle was portable. Another suggestion is to associate the seven lamps with the seven sisters of Pleiades, Job 9, verse 9, 38, verse 31, Amos 5, verse 8. The twelve loaves of showbread on the table of showbread should be correlated to the manna that rained upon Israel from heaven during the wilderness sojourn, Nehemiah 9, verse 15, John 6, verse 31. As the people ate this heavenly bread, they were symbolically transformed into a heavenly people. They became the stars of the Abrahamic promise. Finally, the cloud of smoke rising from the altar of incense is to be associated with God's glory cloud, as it appeared in the firmament heavens, Exodus 19, verse 18. Incense has to do with prayer, and the glory cloud environment is an environment of ceaseless angelic prayer, Isaiah 6, verse 3-4, through 4, Revelation 5, verse 8. It is very interesting to note that synagogue buildings dating from the early Christian era very often have three sections of mosaics on their floors, stretching from the door to the front. The first mosaic is generally nondescript, but the one at the Beth Alpha synagogue is a picture of the sacrifice of Isaac, clearly a courtyard, holy mountain theme. The second mosaic, occupying the center of the hall, is almost invariably a zodiac. The third mosaic at the front is a sacred portal, filled with the imagery of the highest heavens. Obviously, the zodiac has to do with the firmament heavens, in this sequence derived from the tabernacle and temple. Similar zodiacs are found in early Christian churches. The Tabernacle as Holy Mountain While the altar in the tabernacle complex was a holy mountain leading toward heaven, in a wider sense the entire tabernacle complex was a holy mountain, or extended ladder to heaven. What makes this clear is the connection between the tabernacle and Mount Sinai. We have already noted that the three-storied Ark of Noah was a world model, a model that transferred itself to the three-storied configuration of the world after the flood. We see the same thing here. Mount Sinai was a world model that transferred itself to the tabernacle. When the people left Mount Sinai, they took the mountain with them. God's cloud covered the top of the mountain, thus establishing it as a most holy place. Moses, and Moses alone, was allowed to enter this place, just as later on only the high priest would be allowed to enter the most holy of the tabernacle, Exodus 19, verse 19 through 24. At the top of the mountain, God gave the Ten Commandments, which were later put in the most holy place of the tabernacle. Midway down the mountain was the holy place. Only the elders of Israel were allowed to go into this area, and there they ate a meal with God. These elders were the sun, moon, and stars of the nation and correlate with the lampstand. The meal they ate correlates with the table of shewbread. The elders themselves correlate with the Aaronic priests, who alone might enter the tabernacle holy place. While the elders ate, they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Exodus 24, verse 10. The blue sapphire pavement is equivalent to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy. The courtyard of the mountain was marked off with the boundary, and anyone who trespassed was put to death. Exodus 19, verse 12. Inside this boundary was placed an altar, and only certain select young men might approach it. Exodus 24, verse 4, 5, 19, verse 22, and 24. The priests at this point were the firstborn sons who had been saved by God at Passover. When they fell into sin at the golden calf, they were replaced by the Levites and the sons of Aaron, who thereafter took care of the sacrifices at the altar. Exodus 32, verse 28 through 29, Numbers 8, 
verse 14 through 18. The boundary around the mountain correlates to the boundary inside the courtyard that kept the people from approaching the altar. In this way, then, the tabernacle, and later the temple, were models of the ladder to heaven, of the holy mountain. Israel did not need to go back to Mount Sinai, or regard it as anything special, after the tabernacle was built. The tabernacle was God's portable mountain. The tabernacle as symbol of the body politic. More than this, however, the tabernacle symbolized humanity as God's true environment. The tabernacle was a symbol of the Israelite body politic. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. For this reason, when the citizens of Israel sinned or became symbolically unclean, corresponding invisible marks appeared in the tabernacle. The more unclean the people became, the more unclean the tabernacle, its furniture, vessels, curtains, pillars, etc. became. To cleanse the tabernacle, then, symbolized cleansing the people. Exodus 24, verse 4 and 8. Only a cleansed people could draw near to God, and God would remain dwelling only in the midst of a cleansed people. Only a cleansed people could form a throne for God, so that he would be willing to sit enthroned on the praises of Israel, his feet resting on them. Psalm 22, verse 3. Ultimately, then, the entire tent was symbolic. The veil signified ranks of guardians around the throne, places where God's feet would rest. The veils of cloth became defiled when the people they represented became defiled. To cleanse the people, blood was put on the veils and on the altars and mercy seat. The ranks of guardians stood to keep people away from God, lest God either become angry and destroy them, or become even angrier and pack up and move out, leaving his house desolate and abominated, and leaving his people to their doom. Ezekiel 8-11 through Thus, these ranks of guardians were shoes between God and the cursed soil of humanity. Accordingly, the veils were also shoes. The outermost veil was significantly made of the same stuff as fine shoes, dolphin leather, and this correlation is made plain in the allegory of Ezekiel 16, verse 10. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of dolphin leather on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. Except for the silk, this is a description of the tabernacle and its veils. The only kind of people God would permit to draw near to him were people who properly imaged him. Genesis 1 verse 26. Such people also needed to be shod. Of course, since the tabernacle was set up on holy ground, they did not have to wear shoes there, but they had to wear shoes everywhere else. As we have seen in chapter 8, the animals that symbolized God's holy people were all animals who wore shoes, or who were particular about where they set their feet. If a man ate an unshoed animal, he became symbolically unshoed himself, and could not enter the sanctuary precincts to offer sacrifice. The three zones of the tabernacle complex symbolized three groups of people. If the high priest sinned, blood had to be sprinkled on the ark in the most holy place. Leviticus 16, verse 11 through 14. If a regular priest sinned, blood was sprinkled on the veil and on the golden altar in the holy place. Thus, the holy place furniture was, was closely associated with the priests as the heavens of Israel. If the congregation as a whole sinned, this also defiled the holy place, which meant that the congregation as a whole was a heavenly people to the nations of the world. Leviticus 4, verse 1-21 through 21. If a citizen sinned, blood was put on the courtyard altar, and this was also the case of a civil leader sin. Leviticus 4, verse 22-35 Now, all of the above were for unintentional sins. Once a year, atonement was made for the high-handed sins of the congregation. 
And on this occasion, blood was put on the ark in the most holy place. Leviticus 16, verse 15 through 16. What emerges from this is a series of associations, a societal worldview. The congregation is associated with the highest heavens, with the firmament heavens, and with the courtyard. There are both stars and dust, both heavens and earth, both cherubic veil and altar of earth. The high priest, as supreme spiritual ruler, is associated with the most holy, the lesser priest with the holy place, and civil leaders with the courtyard. The priests rule in heavenly things, and the leaders rule in earthly things. Once we understand that the tabernacle was a symbol of Israelite society, there are all kinds of correlations that can be made. The inner veil of the Most Holy has to do with God's angelic guardians. The outer veil of the holy place has to do with the priestly guardians. The goat's hair tent curtain over the tabernacle has to do with the courtyard and the Levites. The red ramskin cover that was on top of the goat's hair tent curtain is to be associated with Passover, and thus with all Israel, who were claimed at Passover. The dolphin leather cover has to do with the Gentiles, dolphin being a sea creature. Interesting as it would be to go on with this, looking at the gold and bronze utensils and other features of the tabernacle complex, we must move on. We shall consider the altar as a symbol of the body politic in more detail in chapter 16. The point that has been established and illustrated is that the tabernacle complex symbolized Israelite society. When the tabernacle complex is torn apart in 1 Samuel, it symbolizes the rending of Israelite society. The Tabernacle as Human Person Finally, the tabernacle symbolized the righteous man, the heavenly man, the man made in God's own heavenly image. John 1 verse 14, 2 verse 21, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. We ought not to think of this as a visual symbol, so that the most holy place is the head and the altar the feet. Rather, the tabernacle symbolized the person in a more holistic fashion. The most holy place symbolized the innermost parts of the man, both head and heart. The holy place had to do with the senses, while the courtyard had to do with the outer man, the skin. Jesus said that the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Matthew 6, verse 22 through 23. There is a kind of inverted metaphor here. Lamps shine forth light, but eyes take light in. The rest of Jesus' statement is forcefully symbolic also. If our eye is good, the light fills our body with light. This can immediately be related to lampstand in the tabernacle, which filled the house with light. The righteous man lets the light of God's glory fill his body, his life. But what is true of the eye is also true of the other organs, also. If the lamp of the body is the eye, then the incense of the body is the nose. If our nose is unstopped, our whole body will be filled with incense. Similarly, the food of the body is the mouth. If our taste is good, our body will be filled with God's heavenly manna and showbread. Let us also recall the high priest always wore bells when he entered the holy place. Exodus 28, verse 34 through 35. The bell of the body is the ear. If our ear is clear, our body will be filled with God's glorious voice. All these things relate to God's glory cloud. The cloud made a wonderful sound replicated in the bells. There was a cloud replicated by the sweet cloud of incense. It shone with light, copied by the lamp. And it rained manna, copied by the table of bread. As Klein has shown, the cloud signified the Spirit of God. So then, the righteous man is filled with God's cloud. 
His presence, His Spirit. The holy place symbolizes the sensory avenues by which God's life comes to His righteous man. The man filled with light is wise. The man filled with music is permeated by the voice of God's word. The man filled with incense is a man of prayer. The man filled with manna is filled with life. The ark in the inner room symbolized the heart and mind. It contained the law, as the law was to be written on the heart. It also contained a pot of manna, showing God's life within the heart. Finally, Aaron's rod that blossomed, the picture of prayer, was found within the heart. God's throne of glory was over the ark, showing that the righteous man has God enthroned on his heart. As head or mind, the ark pictured leadership, the self-control of the righteous man. The righteous man's outer life was symbolized by the courtyard. The labors showed that the righteous man lives a clean and moral public life, and the altar showed that the righteous man is a man who worships in public, not just in heart. Conclusion A worldview is a complex thing. It is as broad and complex as the world itself. The tabernacle complex, the description of which covers over a thousand verses, was a world model, and thus was very rich. We have only scratched the surface of the marvels to be found there. Even so, we may have become somewhat lost in the details, so let us summarize the nature of the Mosaic establishment. New names. God is the Lord, Yahweh or Jehovah, the God who keeps the promises made to the Father. People. Israel comes to replace Hebrew as the prevailing term. Grant. The land of Canaan. Promise. God will be with them in their midst. Stipulations. The sacramental is Passover and the whole sacrificial uncleanness and festival system. Societal. The Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law as a whole, both as it symbolized society, tabernacle and sacrifice, and as it legislated for society, the case laws of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Polity. Church. The separation of church and state. Priests at tabernacle, Levites at synagogues. State is local elders with judges at the top, and symbol, the tabernacle complex. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.